morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to morning worship at Hillhead on this stunning morning here in Glasgow. As always, a special welcome to our family and friends joining us from all across the country and around the world. And in particular, it's lovely to see Tamara and Marit with us this morning. And we can assure you that our thoughts and prayers are still with those communities in Germany so affected by the flooding. Our worship this morning will be led by our minister, Katrina. And as well as Katrina, this morning we'll also hear the voices of Elham and Ali leading us in the Lord's Prayer, Leo, Esan and Sylvia reading for us, and Ken who lead our prayers for others. Our musicians this morning are Paul, Eri, Yang Yang and Neil. Then in a moment or two, Esther and David and their family will be lighting our candle. And if you'd like to light your candle then, that's your opportunity to do that. Next Sunday morning at 11am, we'll be having a joint service with Grove Lane Baptist Church in Chidohume, and the preacher will be their minister, the Reverend Dr Ruth Goldborn. And just a wee reminder, there are no evening services this month. Now then, over to David and Esther to light our candle. As we gather for worship, let I'm us join together for the world to become the body of Christ. Okay. It's my turn. Christ is the light that lights our way. May we glimpse Christ's light this day.
holy God, whom we meet in Jesus, and whose spirit stirs our hearts and minds for worship. It is our joy and our privilege to gather together today, across the country and around the globe. As we gather, we marvel at the wonder of who you are, far beyond our understanding, yet interested in the details of our individual lives. Further away than the ends of the universe, yet closer than our own heartbeat. God of extremes, we worship and adore you. As we gather, we delight in the simplicity of the life of Jesus. Born just like one of us, utterly dependent on others to keep him safe and to help him flourish. Who knew what it was to laugh and to cry to be full of energy or to be bone weary. God of our ordinary every day, we worship and adore you. As we gather, we open ourselves to the possibility of your spirit, untamable and unpredictable, like wind, like flame, like flowing water, who hovers over chaos, bringing order and insight, energy and hope. God of the extraordinary, we worship and adore you. Holy God, whom we meet in Jesus, and whose Holy Spirit stirs our hearts and minds for worship, accept our praises and our prayers Renew our hope and give us peace. And we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
So today we come to the third in this very short series of thinking about Jesus, focusing on Jesus in different through different lenses. We've done it through the lens of history um, to see how people have tried to discover more about the historical man, Jesus of Nazareth. We've done it through the performing arts and particularly through film. And today we're going to do it through the visual arts. And so I thought I'd start, if this works, it does work, with a very brief history of uh, Jesus in art. And it's generally thought that this image here is the oldest purported representation of Jesus in visual arts. It is a graffito, a piece of graffiti on a wall in Rome, and it's called the Alexamenos Graffito. And the writing translates as Alexandros worships his God. Now, you might be quite uncomfortable with this picture, and, and that's quite right. You should be, because this donkey-headed person being crucified is meant to mock Christians. Alexandros is a Christian, and so he worships Jesus, the crucified God. We think this is the oldest known representation relating to be Jesus in, in art. But in the early days of Christianity, obviously it was dangerous to be a Christian and also portrayals of Jesus, pictures of Jesus just weren't what people did. And these two particular symbols are very much used in early Christian art. We're probably familiar with both of them. On the left of your screens, you should see the Cairo, the K, the K and the R sound in Greek, the beginning of the word Christ. And that particular sign um, is, is shown in the Vatican, but it's quite often used in early Christian art. And then we also have the ichthos, the fish. And I'm sure we all know, or maybe we don't, but many of us will know that if you write out the word ichthos in Greek, the initial, those letters are the initials of the, the Greek for Jesus Christ, son of God, saviour. And this was a, a kind of secret sign that Christians used that, that they understood um, as a way of saying, look, I'm a Christian, are you? Um, tradition has it that somebody would sort of draw the, the fish on the sand. And if you were a Christian, you would dot the I. And if you weren't a Christian, you just go, oh, that's a nice fish. And people would be able to judge how to respond. So this is kind of second century, but a couple of hundred years after Jesus. By the third century, we start to see paintings of Jesus. And this one comes from um, the catacomb of Priscilla, again in Rome. And this is Jesus, the good shepherd. So we can see he is a man. He is dressed in the clothes of his time. He's probably quite Roman in what he's wearing. But notice he's quite dark skinned. He has dark hair and dark eyes. This is also a fourth century image from the catacombs. But what we're starting to see is other people in the picture. So at the centre, we have Jesus. And either side of him are Peter and Paul. And then at the bottom are four people, four humans and ordinary humans. And these are martyrs. So the kind of art we saw of Jesus was very much related to people's experience. They 
they sort of set him at the centre with Peter and Paul on his left and right and themselves perhaps underneath. By the 6th century, we're starting to see icons of Jesus. Now, icons are specifically religious art, which intends to help people to focus for prayer or meditation. A bit like the icons on your computer, you use that icon as a way to get past it to something much more interesting, much more important. This is Jesus Pantocrator, the omnipotent, the all-powerful Jesus. Um, and it's, uh, as I say, it's something that would have been used for meditation. We can see he has a halo. We can see the positioning of his fingers, which is a symbol of the Trinity. And he's holding a book. But again, notice he is certainly olive skinned and has dark hair and brown eyes, very much set in the culture in which he was painted. By the time we move into the, what's, well, some people call it the Gothic period, some people call it the medieval period, we start to see images of a suffering Jesus. Lots of crucifixions start to appear. The one on the left comes from a 10th century Psalter, a book of, of psalms and prayers. And the one on the right is Fra Angelica. That's a 15th century picture. But what you can probably see is that Jesus' skin is becoming more pale. He's becoming more a Western European rather than a Middle Eastern person. And although he is so shown as suffering, both of these images are pretty um, non-graphic. They're quite nice and, and artified. It's kind of um, a clean, hygienic image. <clears throat> and then, of course, we come on to um, the High Renaissance and this very familiar Da Vinci Last Supper from the Vatican. And Jesus' skin has become paler again. His hair is paler. The clothing has changed. The clothing represents the time at which the picture was painted. And of course, there's all the jokes we can make about how they all happen to gather conveniently on one side of the table so that we can witness all of them. But we see the influence of culture on the art. It's telling a story. It's, it's very important for people. It's been chosen to be in a religious setting. But the skin and the hair are much more Western European. Now, this is one of the images that was actually, this particular copy of it isn't, but somebody sent me um, this picture to share this morning. That was Joan sent it to me. And um, because it is dis was displayed on the wall of a leprosy hospital in India where she worked. And what struck her at the time was there was this one painting of Jesus in amidst loads of portrayals of Hindu deities. Everywhere else she went, there was Hindu deities. But this was the Jesus that was on the wall in the leprosy hospital. This is a mid-20th century image and apparently is the best-selling image um, of Jesus there is, most amongst Protestants and Catholics. He is definitely um, a Northwestern European in, in features, which isn't in some senses that surprising. He was painted by a British artist who would have used somebody he knew as a model. But it's also one of the paintings, and I hope this isn't spoiling it for anybody, that people see stuff in that may or may not have been intended. Some Roman Catholic commentators see this circle of light on Jesus' head as a symbol of the host and the shape of his neck showing the, uh, the cords in his neck 
as a chalice. So is this actually a kind of Eucharistic image of Jesus or is it just a beautiful picture of, his, of Jesus? I leave that for you to decide. But this Jesus appears on Bibles, he appears on cards, he appears, you name it, he's there. And of course, we move on to this image, which you can't talk about Jesus in art in, Gla in Glasgow without Christ of St. John of the Cross, the famous Dali. It's actually inspired by a 16th century sketch, which is shown on the right. What we see is, I think it's fair to say, a Western European Jesus over a very stylized um, Sea of Galilee, which again looks far more like Western Europe than it looks like Galilee. But it is a beautiful and powerful image. So one of the things I want to say is that just because something isn't necessarily accurate in its portrayal doesn't mean it doesn't have meaning. The meaning may be in that inaccuracy as much as in the accuracy. So that's where I'm going to stop for now. We will see some more images shortly um, that were sent in from folk in the church. And also there will be some more images as I share a brief reflection later. But now let's just sing a hymn that rejoices in some of the creativity that God has given to each of us.
Now, as part of this service, I invited people to send in images of Jesus that were significant to them in some way, or also if you were a younger person, to send in a drawing or a painting of Jesus. We don't have huge numbers of those, but those we do have are really precious and really beautiful and wonderful. So we're going to see them um, in a moment. And I'd just like you to enjoy them. But also, if something strikes you about the Jesus you see there, whether it's a question or a glimpse of something special, just to try and notice that and, and hold on to it so you can perhaps ponder it again later on. So some images of Jesus chosen by our congregation. Enjoy. The first reading is from Isaiah. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power looked like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and the people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum, but the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong about us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures, but it was our sins that did that, did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. Colossians 1, 
15 to 20. No one can see God, but the Son is exactly like God. He rules over everything that he has been made. Through his power, all things were made. Things in heaven and on earth, seen and not seen. All spiritual rules, lords, powers, and authorities. Everything was made through him and for him. The sun was there before everything was made. And all things continue because of him. He is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning of everything else. And he is the first among all who will be raised from death. So in everything, he is most important. God was pleased for all of himself to live in the sun. And through him, God was happy to bring all, all things back to himself again. Things on earth and things in heaven. God made peace by using the blood sacrifice of his son on the cross. I'm reading Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 29. Jesus and his followers went to the town in the area of Caesarea Philip. While they were traveling, Jesus asked the, the followers, who do people say I am? They answered, some people say, you are John the Baptizer. Others say, you are Elijah. And others say, you are one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Peter answers, you are the Messiah. image what does Jesus look like and does it matter well I guess there's a really simple answer to those questions nobody really knows and no it doesn't except that it's not as simple as that things never are are they some years ago I came across this composite set of images that could be used as a discussion starter for a Bible study or 
discussion group, what does Jesus look like? And people were invited to pick images that they thought looked like Jesus or didn't look like Jesus. Of course, we don't know what Jesus looked like. And St. Augustine in particular is quite clear on that. However, there are things not in the Bible. And amongst those is an, a version of the writings of Josephus, which is um, found from Russia. And it says this about Jesus. He was a man of simple appearance, mature age, dark skin, short growth, about three cubits tall. That is um, about four and a half feet or 1.4 metres or roughly the average height of a 10-year-old boy in our time. He was hunched back with a long face, a long nose, eyebrows meeting above the nose so that spectators could take fright. With scanty hair, having a line in the middle of the head after the fashion of the Nazareans, and with an underdeveloped beard. The picture we have here was on a website from which I downloaded that quote. If it's not too irreverent, I think the picture looks not unlike Mr Bean, and certainly the description could probably also fit Mr Bean. What did Jesus look like? This is a question that became of interest to people again around the time of the millennium, and if you're my age or similar or older, you may remember this picture, which appeared in a number of British national newspapers and was referred to a lot on television. Some researchers gathered a lot of first century male Jewish skulls and scanned them because they assumed, not unreasonably, that Jesus' skull would have been very similar to those of his contemporaries. And so they put together this image of Jesus. I think there were probably little bits of the Josephus um, language featuring in that, perhaps in the beard and the hair, which is not how we traditionally imagine it. But of course, we don't know for certain that he looked like that. There aren't any photos. Photography hasn't been invented. And it appears that nobody who actually met him thought it was important to write it down. We can quite reasonably make deductions about his skin tone, his hair colour and something of his hairstyle, the colour of his eyes and, yeah, his height and weight. We have got other ways of checking those out. Does it matter that we can't demonstrate what Jesus looked like? Well, no. But yes. This is a selection of predominantly 20th century images. We have Robert Powell as Jesus of Nazareth. We have a Pieta, which I forgot to write down where, where that comes from and who painted it. We also have a couple of images from children's Bible storybooks. The one in the centre is a late 20th century, early 21st century image. It's either Lion or Osborne. And then the one on the right, I think, is a ladybird book that I had as a child. He's very, very Western European in appearance. His skin tone gets lighter over time, as we've already seen. 
And, and at one level, there's nothing wrong with that. If you're using people you know as models for your pictures, then you will paint people a Jesus who looks like them. In fact, there's absolutely nothing wrong with contextualizing our images of Jesus at all. Well, not until you're a white missionary taking your white Jesus to contexts where white people have been powerful oppressors. What does it mean to take your white Jesus into parts of Africa where people were kidnapped and sold into slavery by powerful white Europeans? Or into Asia? or into other places where First Nation peoples were driven out of their homes by white so-called Christians. You see, even the best and most well-meaning missionaries, and they were well-meaning, we don't, mustn't ever forget that Carrie stood up to people who said that God didn't care about people who weren't white. They were well-meaning, but they took with them their culture as well as their faith. So they took with them what you should wear in church, what a church building should look like. They threw out drums, which they saw as demonic and imported harmoniums and organs. They made people sit on pews. They made men wear suits and women wear hats because they had got mixed up between a contextualized Jesus and the essentials of Christianity. At its worst, whether we like it or not, a white Jesus becomes an image of, well, at least white privilege and potentially white supremacy. It's certainly an image of white power. So does it matter what we portray Jesus as looking like? Around about 20 years ago, just at the turn of the century, the Methodist Church in Great Britain produced a pack of images called The Christ We Share, which sought to explore some of these difficult questions. And so here are some of those images with some others I've gathered from other places over the years since. We have a Jesus as a Maasai chieftain, a Jesus with dreadlocks, a Jesus in an African village, an Ethiopian icon of Jesus with very wide eyes, and then an Oriental Jesus, a Mary. What does it mean if Jesus looks like me? And what does it mean if Jesus looks like those I consider to be the other? Does it matter if Jesus looks like me or doesn't look like me? And as we look at these images or others, these are quite tame. I could have got much more scary images. If we look at images that are not our familiar, comfortable, white Western Jesus, how does that make us feel? The Jesus of history asked his followers, who do you say I am? When we began this series, we looked at the Jesus of history 
And we, we discovered that actually we can know for certain quite a lot about his time, his place, some of the stuff that he did, some of the places he went. But there's a lot we don't know. And we, we ended that service by recognising there's a leap of faith that we have to make between what we can know and what we can prove about a man who lived 2000 years ago and what we believe about the Christ of God. Incarnate God, eternal God, beyond time, beyond place, beyond race, beyond culture, beyond language, beyond creed. The anointed one of God, whose purpose in entering creation was not to judge it, but to redeem and save it. Whatever we think about these images of Jesus, these make us ask that question, who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? And what does that mean? According to the Gospels, and I've, I've said this many a times before, in his lifetime, there were four people who recognised Jesus as Messiah. One of them was Peter. And then there was a Samaritan woman who had been married five times. We know nothing of her background, except that she was currently living with somebody who, to whom she wasn't married, but she recognised Jesus as Messiah. There was a man who had been born blind, a devout Jewish man, who had received his sight back and recognised Jesus as Messiah and was thrown out of the synagogue for it. And there was a devout Jewish woman called Martha, whose brother died. And in a conversation with Jesus at the graveside, she said, yeah, yeah, you're the Messiah. They glimpsed something in who they saw that pointed them to the Christ of God. One of our readings this morning reminded us that no one can see God, but the sun is exactly like God, or the image of the invisible God as more um, precise translations might put it. Some years ago, there was a bit of a vogue for making pictures of Jesus by putting together lots of little tiles of human faces. And, and one of the images, the one on the left, is one of the ones that was sent to me for use this morning. Um, if you could look at it at full size, you would discover that somewhere in that image is Margaret Thatcher. And I remember this and discussed it with a person who then went away and hunted for her for me and told me where she is. There are a number of famous faces in there. There are a number of unknown faces. This idea of a composite face of Jesus who is made up of human beings. And that shouldn't surprise us because we use this language so often, don't we, of being the body of Christ. We talk about ourselves as being God's Christ's hands and feet, Christ's ears and eyes in the world. What if the truth is that Jesus looks a bit like each and every one of us? Some of you may recognise this image. It's one of the very first Jesus pictures I used in preaching at Hillhead. In fact, I think I might have used it when I came to do my preach where he decided to call me. And he is a Western European Jesus. I can't get away from that. His, his features are probably Western European. But what I love about it is that he is composed of all sorts and sizes and colours and shapes of people. I love that he's smiling. I love that his hands stretch right to the edges of the picture and that his feet are moving. Is he dancing? Is he walking? Is he running? 
I don't know. But he is a Jesus who is full of life. A Jesus who looks like you. A Jesus who looks like me. A Jesus who looks like us. We took this photo to accompany us singing a hymn written for Christian Aid, by Christian Aid um, a couple of years back. But isn't it a beautiful image of us uh, smiling, diverse, different skin tones, different hairstyles and lengths, some with glasses, some without. Uh, we have a dog, we have children, we have adults. Each one of us is made in the image and likeness of God. And together, we are an image of the invisible God. We are the body of Christ. We are Jesus in this place. So if Jesus looks like us individually and collectively, if Jesus looks a bit like every single person on this planet, then it matters. And I can't find a better way to sum up any of that than to paraphrase a couple of lines from our next hymn. Because if Jesus looks like you and Jesus looks like me and we glimpse him in each other, then siblings in Hillhead Baptist Church, let me be to you like the servant Christ. And pray that I may have the grace to let you be like the servant Christ to me. Amen.
now we bring our prayers for others and for ourselves. Let us pray. O God, our Father, we come before you this morning seeking your nearer presence. We come with open hearts, ready to receive the grace which you freely grant to us as we live out our lives. We come with thankful hearts for all the many blessings we've received at your hand. And we come with contrite hearts for our failures when we have been selfish or greedy or unforgiving, unforgiving of others. Accept our pleas for forgiveness and set our feet on a new path that we might walk in your ways and show forth your love to one another in all our thoughts and actions. Today we would give thanks for all that we've learned through the visual arts, the images in paintings, the scenarios in films, the depictions in television and in the theatre. We give thanks for the manner in which each of these media have helped to inform our faith and made more real the message of the Gospels. From stained glass windows to endless illustrations of biblical scenes, to epic films and theatre productions, down the years, Countless generations have found greater understanding and inspiration as these images have helped to educate and inform those seeking for truth. In the modern age, we're almost overwhelmed by visual and audible communications, and we pray that those who would seek to promote the faith might continue to exploit these many methods to advance understanding of truth that might encourage belief. As we come in worship today, we would bring our prayers for others. The world is so large with so many millions of people that we find it difficult to comprehend how your love would seek to embrace and encompass every living soul. But we know that your love is endless and your compassion without bounds. And within all of this, we would seek to be the agents whereby your love is shown. And while none of us can begin to tackle the enormity of the world's problems and concerns, we can begin by showing forth your love to those around us, in our nation, our city, our home, our church, and our own family. In that spirit, we would bring to mind today members of our own congregation. Especially today, we think of Liz and Douglas, Anne and Brian, Paul P and Mary P. Leslie and Alistair, Grace and Will, Nancy, Lizzie and Petri, Ian, Elizabeth and Joanna. From the Baptist Union prayer calendar, we pray for the churches at High Blantyre and Hillview Community Church. And in turn, the Baptist community will offer prayers today for our own church here at Hillhead. Casting our minds to the work of the BMS Worldwide, this week, we offer prayers for the extensive work in the land of Peru, for mission workers and for those coordinating food relief, for mission training, education and conferences. And so, dear Lord, we offer up all these people, all these causes and concerns, all the ways in which the faithful servants are seeking to manifest the love of God in action. Support them all and grant them your strength to persevere and make, make us faithful in our prayers for those workers and our tangible support for those causes. And so we hold up before you today a world still suffering 
from the COVID pandemic. I wasn't seeking to come to terms with widespread flooding in Belgium, Germany and China, and a world in many places basking in sunshine, and yet under the ominous shadow of, ch of changing weather patterns and long-term climate change. Grant us the will to act with wisdom and love as we confront these challenges. Finally, we would remember all the nations of our world as their eyes turn to the participants of the Olympic Games in Japan. May this event, fraught as it has been with difficulties, nonetheless draw the world's peoples together in a spirit of unity and concord. Dear Lord, hear these our prayers as we commend all the citizens of the world to your loving care, while at the same time may each of us resolve that we will not weary in well-doing, but be constant in our efforts, our giving, and our prayers, that your kingdom may come and your will be done. Amen. As we go on into the week ahead, may the stories of Jesus of history teach us eternal truths. May our faith in the Christ of God give us the strength for the challenges we face. And may the divine image we glimpse in others and in each other encourage us to live out the hope that shapes our lives 
today and every day. Amen.